Uh, let's dive into the Word, guys. Let's dive into the Word. I've got something that, that God's put on our heart. We want to continue this series called Greater Love because we believe that Jesus showed us a greater example of what true love is. He said that greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then he said, you're my friends. And he laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for me. And didn't just tell us what love was, but he showed us what love was. While he was on this earth, and he showed us what love was with his sacrifice for our sins. And I'm so grateful that he backed up what he said. Now, I know the rain is falling outside, and it might be difficult to hear me, so I know the guys are going to bump me up a little bit in the house so that you guys can hear me okay. If the rain just starts hitting really hard, just focus in on me and don't let it be a distraction. And don't fall asleep on me this morning. I love napping through rain. I love napping through thunderstorms. They put me to sleep, so I'm going to stay awake on stage because that would be incredibly awkward if the pastor went to sleep in the middle of the service. So you guys stay awake. Look at the person next to you and say, stay awake. Now, if you see the person next to you dozing, you've got my permission to thump them on the nose this morning and keep them awake. I'm not saying that you should do that, but you got my permission if you need to. Anything you do after that, uh, we hereby release LifePoint Ministries of all legal liability, bodily harm. That's anything you do is of your own choice and action and not reflective upon us as a church. So that's a pretty good legal disclaimer, isn't it? I'm getting good at this pastor stuff. Cover your tracks. Cover your tracks on stuff. <laughs> so last week we talked about, uh, I get excited when I hear people say, this is what God showed me from the message. That's much more important to me. I want people's lives impacted and changed and challenged by the word of God. I don't want people saying, great job, pastor. I want people saying, God is awesome. Look what he just showed me from the word. And that's what we're all about here. We talked about offenses and how to avoid that and how to protect our hearts and fall into that trap that the enemy has for us. Um, so some time has gone by. Jesus and the disciples have left that last supper setting. Judas has gone out to betray Jesus and Jesus and the disciples go from the upper room into a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray with the disciples and then Judas comes in with the chief priests and an entourage of soldiers and betrays Jesus and I'm so grateful for what happens in Gethsemane though because it's in Gethsemane that Jesus begins to wrestle with this human part of who he is you know, Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man at the same time. And a lot of people think, well, Jesus didn't have any problem walking through this earth. You know, he had no problem because he was the son of God. He was God, and sin wasn't an issue with him. Temptation wasn't. Temptation was very much an issue with Jesus. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, except he didn't sin through the process because he had a close relationship with his father. And so Jesus in Gethsemane begins to wrestle with this flesh part of himself because he knows what's fixing to happen to him. He knows what he's fixing to have to go through. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows it's going to hurt a lot. And he doesn't want to go through with it, but he's going to go through with it. He doesn't want to suffer, but he knows he's going to suffer. You know, just like you do things for your children because you love them, even though you don't feel like doing it. You know, Jesus is like, he's praying, he's like, Father, if there's any way, 
If there's any way, can this cup please pass from me? If there's any other way, is there any other way that this can happen without me having to go and do what I'm fixing to have to go and do? And then finally he landed on solid ground and he said, not my will, but yours be done. Now that's the earmark of spiritual maturity right there. When you can pray, not my will, but yours be done. That's some big boy, big girl stuff right there in the kingdom of God. God, it's not what I want. It's not what's comfortable for me. It's not what's going to make me feel secure. I want your will above my will. I want to do what you want me to do instead of what I want to do in this moment. I lay down my agenda. I lay down my dreams. I lay down my goals. I submit it all to you. Not my will, God, but yours be done. Now, when you can pray that and mean it from your heart, now you're getting in a place where God can do something powerful in and through your life because you're dying to yourself and you're letting him take up residency and control in your life. And so Jesus prays that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And in that moment, that moment, I believe our salvation was secured. Not just on his death on the cross and not just at his resurrection, but in Gethsemane when he made the decision to follow through with it and submit completely to the will of God. That's where the deal was done. Because there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. And there is no crucifixion without Gethsemane. And Jesus made the decision once and for all. And I think sometimes when it comes to what he went through, like we understand what he went through. And some of us have probably studied in great detail on what he went through when he suffered, when he was crucified, when he was tortured by the Romans. But today I want us to spend a little bit of time, I want us to spend a little bit of time focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus. And what he went through. We're going into Easter weekend next week. Today's technically Palm Sunday where Jesus rode in uh, triumphantly into Jerusalem. And man, that crowd turned on him real quick. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he rode in. And those same people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, less than a week later. Now the cross to us is a symbol of faith. The cross to us is a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross, his sacrifice, his suffering. And it's pretty commonplace. Like really, if I bet if I wouldn't have to go far into the crowd here looking at jewelry before I found a cross on a ring or a necklace or on a Bible. Most of us carry around that symbol or a tattoo. Probably some of us have got a cross tattoo on us somewhere. We're carrying crosses in here because it's a symbol and it represents something to us. But if you were going to go back into the day that Jesus lived in and pick somebody out and just airdrop them into 2019 today, they would be shocked to see us so happy about the symbol of a cross because the cross meant something completely different to them back then. And that day, the cross was a horrible symbol. And that day, the cross was something heinous. It was something to be reviled. It was, it was something that you, it was despicable. Because the cross was reserved for the worst of the worst of criminals. The cross was like the pinnacle of capital punishment in the Roman society. In fact, if you were put on the cross, you were, like, you were, um, you were causing some kind of insurrection or leading some kind of rebellion or you, create, you cause 
or you did some kind of heinous capital crime to get there. The worst of the worst of the worst were put on the cross. It was a horrific symbol, and the Romans used it as a symbol of deterrent to keep the people in check, to keep the people under control, to show them, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. You know, if you do this, then we're going to crucify you. And when they crucify people, they would do it in a public way, and you would, they would do it on roadside. So when people coming in and out of the city, they could see people crucified, and they would see and know, okay, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. They would crucify people on hilltops so that it was very visible. And it, wasn't com- it was not uncommon at all to be walking through and just hearing people screaming and suffering and being tortured and slowly dying on the cross. It was a horrific way to die, and that's what they would do. Can you imagine cruising through Atlanta and just seeing people lined up on crosses? We don't even think that way today, but back then it was common. That's what they did. So the cross meant something completely different to them. So when Jesus walked around and he was alluding to the fact that he was going to die, and he was going to die on a cross, that was mind-blowing to people because that was reserved to the worst of the worst of the worst of criminals. And so I want us to take a little bit of look today at what Jesus went through leading into the cross and on the cross so that we can have a deeper appreciation of his sacrifice. Because it's one thing for us to say, I love Jesus because he died for me for my sins. But do you really understand what Jesus went through when he was on the cross? Do you really understand how he suffered for you and for me? Isaiah 53, verse 1, reads like this. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Talking about Jesus here. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Over 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah wrote this prophetically about Jesus. Jesus paid a high price for the freedom that you and I have spiritually. Just like we have a freedom freedom in America that's paid for by the blood and the sacrifice of servicemen and women over centuries of service protecting the freedom that we have here. We enjoy freedom spiritually because of the sacrifice of one Savior, and his name is Jesus. It cost him something. And if you look in here, everything that we get comes with a price that was paid by him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus paid a price for everything that we enjoy spiritually. For all the freedom, the forgiveness of our sins, he paid an incredibly high price for. And I want to revisit that today. John chapter 
19, verse 1. Jesus has been taken by the soldiers up before Pilate, and this mock trial is going on. Pilate's trying to do these political moves to, to, to avoid a big incident. He can't find any fault with Jesus, but the religious leaders have turned this crowd against Jesus, and they're all shouting, crucify him, and, and all of this stuff. And, and so Pilate figures, well, maybe I can just do this one thing and punish him a little bit and then bring him back out and they'll let this guy go. And So then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So Pilate sends Jesus out to be flogged. That word flogged does not do justice to what happened to Jesus. When the soldiers took Jesus back to the whipping post of flogging, the Bible says they put a purple robe on him and they start, they start hitting him. They start slapping him. They start beating him. They hit him with sticks. They rip out his beard. And they put this crown of thorns on his head. And we think thorns in the south, we think what you see on a rose bush. You think what you might find on a blackberry bush. Y'all got blackberry bushes in your yard? Yeah, you got, those are not fun to get caught up in. Those are little bitty briars and thorns. The thorns that they made the crown out of were like long needles. And they, they pushed that on Jesus' head. Those things, half inch to an inch, some of them a couple of inches long, dug into his head, opened him up. Before he even goes to the whipping post, he's already suffering a lot. Can you imagine? You guys that have got facial hair, get that goatee or get that beard a little tug. Ladies, yank on your man's beard and see what he does. You'll get his attention in a hurry. It hurts. Ripped it straight out. And then they said that he was flogged. When they flogged, they didn't play. Isaiah, again, 700 years before, prophetically wrote about this. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. When they would flog these people, they wouldn't use a normal whip. And some of you know this, but some of you may not know this. I want you to understand the gravity of what's happening here in this moment in Jesus' life. They used something called a cat of nine tails. And I brought a picture of one to show you what it would look like roughly. It is a whip, but it would have nine lashes that would come out on it. So you weren't just getting hit by a whip, you were getting hit literally by like nine lashes of a whip at the same time. And they would give you, when they flogged you, they would hit you with 39 lashes from this thing. Now that would be bad enough because you see the knots that would be at the end of it, but what they would do is they would take and into the lashes of this whip, they would put pieces of bone they would put pieces of glass and broken pottery, little pieces of metal, sometimes little hooks would be in this thing, so that when the Roman soldiers would whip you, it wouldn't just hit you, it would hit and it would dig into the meat. And then when they pulled the whip back, it would rip and shred as it was pulled back. 
Now, before they did this, usually they would take little reeds and they would beat you from your ankle up to your shoulders with these reeds to prepare you for the cat of nine tails. And what they were doing is they were kind of tenderizing the meat. They were busting you up and bruising you so that they could bust the capillaries so that the blood would come close to the surface of the skin. So that when they started on you with this and they started ripping the meat and the blood would flow, it would put on a good show. Now they would start at your ankles and work their way up to the shoulders with this. Sometimes two guards would take turns. Sometimes they would have three taking turns. And the guards that would do this to the prisoners that got this sentence were specially trained to use these. It was like an elite group. They were, they were trained to do this. They were good at what they did. They could put the whip just about anywhere they wanted to. Now, when they tied you up to the whipping post to receive this, you were naked. You know, in all the movies, you see Jesus with a loincloth or Jesus with something on, and they pull you know, his shirt down, and then they just tear up his back. That's not what happened. You're naked on that post, and they start at your ankles, and they work their way up, and that thing digs in and rips meat out one lash at a time, one lash at a time. It would be like getting hit with the chain from a chainsaw. That's like the closest thing I could use to compare it. It would be like somebody taking a chainsaw blade and just hitting you with those razors and those teeth and just shredding you one lash at a time. And it wasn't uncommon for people to die at the whipping post because of the trauma and the blood loss from that because when it was all said and done, you would literally have almost no skin at all from ankles to the top of your shoulders. And what's crazy is that when they would do the whipping, the, the cat of nine tails a lot of times would come across the back and grab in the front and rip the meat from there too. Now, I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm trying to paint a picture of what Jesus went through for you and for me. And many times your ribs would be exposed, your kidneys would be exposed, your spine would be exposed, the bones in the shoulders would be exposed because it would just rip through the flesh and then rip through the muscle, and it would rip through the organs and sometimes cause death just because of that. But that thing ripping from the front when it lashed around a lot of times would expose organs from the front on people. And because you were naked when you were whipped, a lot of times the whip would catch areas that you pray never get caught by a whip. Our Savior had his beard ripped out, beaten, beaten with rods, beaten with those reeds, and then had his back filleted by the cat of nine tails. Isaiah 52, verse 14, reads like this, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus was unrecognizable as a person. He was beaten so horrifically, physically destroyed. You could not recognize him as a person, mostly because of what had happened in this courtyard. So Pilate brings him back up and shows him to the people, and 
They still want to have Jesus crucified. So finally, in John 19, verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, along with the two others, one on each side of Jesus, one on each side of Jesus, and Jesus in the middle. Carrying his own cross. So after he was ripped apart like that, he had to carry his own cross out to the place where he was going to be crucified. Now, there's scholars debate on what actually Jesus carried when he went out there. It was either the entire cross or it was a cross beam. A cross beam would have weighed about 100 pounds. The entire cross would have weighed roughly about 300, 350 pounds, something like that. So Jesus had to drag at least 100 pounds with organs exposed and no skin from his ankles to the top of his shoulders. A few miles outside the city gates to the place to be crucified. Crucified, that, we say Jesus was crucified for our sins, but do you really understand what happened when they would crucify somebody? It was one of the most horrible ways to die. When, when they crucified somebody, it, it, was, it was unreal. They, I'll, I'll show you. I brought some pictures. Most people know that they, put, you, they would nail hand, or put nails in your hands and in your feet. But when they put the nail in the hand, they would put it right here. And I see sometimes on TV they show the nail going right here into Jesus' hand. That's not where it went because there's nothing to support weight right here except the meat, okay? Now, I'm not trying to gross you out, but this can only hold roughly maybe 40 pounds, maybe 50 pounds of weight before it's just going to give way and rip the nail through. So they would put the spike right here, and the spike was about five to seven inches long, and it had a head on it that was about a quarter inches in diameter to give a good fasten so that when they nailed you down, it would be secure. There was also, <laughs> right here, you guys can grab your wrist right about here, and if you squeeze down hard enough in the right spot, you're going to feel a little pressure point. Well, there's a nerve right there. There's a nerve right there. And when they would put the spike in, it would hit that nerve, and when you were hanging on the cross, that nerve was under constant pressure. So that pain you feel when you barely squeeze that nerve, multiply that by about 100. And that's what was constantly felt by somebody that was crucified. Now when they would put and stretch you out to nail you to the cross, they would stretch your arms out as far as they could physically get them, and then they would pull a little bit more. And a lot of times they would pull shoulders out of joint doing this. And the reason why is they wanted to stretch you out as far as possible and nail you down so that all of the weight would be distributed. It would be hung by your wrist, but it would be distributed, and all the weight and the pressure would collect and gather right here on your chest. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But what they would do is, once they nailed you down, they would take rope, and they would wrap it around your wrist and sometimes your hands to lash you to the cross. Now, wouldn't hold weight all the weight was being held by the spikes right here pushed up on the wrist between those two bones that's plenty enough to hold the weight of a body 
suspended on a cross. But they lashed the hands so that later on when you were dying, well, what happened is because of the loss of blood, because of asphyxiation, because of dehydration, your muscles would start to cramp. You would start to seize. And a lot of times people would just start to shake and convulse on the cross uncontrollably. And they would have seizures. And they would literally, because of the cramping and the pulling, they would rip themselves off of the cross. So to fix that, the Romans started strapping people down so that when they were pulling, they'd have to figure out a way to break the ropes and rip themselves off of the nails. So you, they secured you by the ropes. So when you were convulsing and, and, and shaking later, you wouldn't rip yourself off. When they nailed your feet, they would put them, you can see it better on the picture than, than me right here, they would, they would lay one foot over the other, kind of like this, and they would put that nail through the foot, going up towards the ankle, and nail you down. And they didn't do this so that the feet could carry weight. They did this just to fasten your feet to the cross. And what they would do is, I'll show you in just a moment, but what they would do is they would twist your body so, so that you were hung and stretched out like this, so that you were fastened by your feet, but no weight could be borne by your feet. All the weight was on your wrists, and all the pressure was on your chest. And when the nail went through the foot right here, there's a nerve right there, just like there is right here in your wrist. And that spike goes right through on it. So while you're hanging on that cross, not only, not only do you have the pain of the spikes, not only do you have the pressure of being up there carrying all that weight, not only are you exposed to the elements, you're slowly dying, but you've got the pressure points in both arms and in both feet screaming, just pounding the entire time because of the pressure that's on that damaged nerve. It hurts. And so when they would hang you up on the cross, this is roughly what you would look like. You would be twisted to the side. Now there's a loincloth on the picture that's here. Jesus didn't get a loincloth. When you were crucified, you were crucified naked. That was part of the punishment. It was part of the shame. So you're twisted over to the side so that all the weight is on the spikes that are in your wrist. All the pressure is distributed to the chest. And the goal is to let you hang there and slowly suffocate over time. Death from crucifixion was designed for you to asphyxiate slowly over time. Blood loss was part of it. Dehydration is part of it, but asphyxiation is what would get you. So with all that pressure on your chest, you would hang there, and when you were crucified, you couldn't take deep breaths. So what you would see would be people panting kind of like a dog would pant, just <laughs> trying to get breaths in. But in order to exhale, because there was, I wish I could get you to stretch your arms out and hold them up high. Do this at home, and you can see after a while, you'll start to feel the pressure coming in on your chest. The only way you could exhale and get rid of the carbon dioxide and the carbon monoxide, get it out of your body, was to pull yourself up 
to exhale it out. Now, that sounds backwards because you would think you would inhale and then exhale to pull yourself up to exhale. And then you would inhale while you were down. And so all day long till you died. And you would try to pull yourself up. But the only way you could pull yourself up was for your pectoral muscles or your lap muscles and your arms up on those spikes because there was no, nothing to support you down here. All that weight was dead weight hanging. So you had to pull yourself up. And every time you would pull yourself up, those nerves would start screaming in your wrists. And in Jesus' case, because his back had just been shredded and filleted, every time he would pull himself up, his raw back would go up the post and then back down. Up and then down. And that's what you did until you died. That's why you read later in the story, because the Sabbath was the next day, um, they had the Roman guards go out and break the legs of the other people that were crucified so that they would drop, so that they couldn't pull themselves up, so they would suffocate and die. But when they got to Jesus, he had already passed, so they didn't break his legs to fulfill prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. It wasn't just the physical suffering that Jesus went through. It was the spiritual weight that he carried too. So he was beaten beyond recognition, hanging on the cross, suffering out there. But at one point, the Bible says that Jesus cried out, My Father, my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know from other parts of Scripture that in that moment, that's when the sin of the world was placed on our Savior. As he hung on that cross as a sacrifice, our sin was placed on him in that moment and was judged on him. In, in Isaiah, fifty-three, verse six, it says, "We all like sheep have gone astray; each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. It didn't say that Jesus committed sin, that he became sin. It was put on him in that moment. Now, I want you to think about this. The weight of not just sin, but all sin for all time that has been and that will be was placed on him and judged on the cross. Can you imagine the spiritual weight that our Savior had to carry? All sin. And I praise God that all sin was put on him. All sexual sin, homosexuality, all anger, all murder, all rage, every, every failure, every sin was put on him. All of my mistakes all of my shortcomings, every time you failed, every time you're going to fail, was paid for once and for all at the cross. Don't you sit here today and sit in condemnation and sit in fear and think you can't come to God because he has already paid the price for every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you will commit because of his love for you. He paid for it 
It's done. It's complete. It's over. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. It was paid for 100%. 100%. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. By the way, that's a good reminder, too, that we shouldn't judge other people for the junk that they're going through in their lives because the Bible says they have the opportunity for the same forgiveness that we do. There are no super sins in the kingdom of God. Now, there, should be, there are in churches, but they're not in the kingdom of God. You can't look at somebody different because they deal with homosexuality when you're running around gossiping. Sin is sin. Sin is sin is sin. And the same blood of Jesus covered all of it. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. Once and for all, it was taken care of. Don't ever forget that he died for you. I don't want us to ever forget that Jesus died for us. I don't want us to ever forget what Jesus went through for us. Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this. It says that, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. That's you. That's me. That means Jesus on the cross looked past the cross and saw us here today and said it's worth it. It's worth it. I'll do it. I'll pay the price. I'll do what's needed to be done because of the joy in my heart, knowing that we can be restored, that you can have forgiveness, that once again you can have a relationship with God like he desires to have with you from the beginning when he created Adam. Jesus restored it all because it was worth it to him. And you hear that story people, people say sometimes, you know, well, if you were the only person on the earth, Jesus still would have died for you. And it's true. It's true. He would have died for you. The only difference is you would have been the one to shout crucify him. You would have been the one to whip him. You would have been the one to put the spikes in his hands and his feet. And you would have been the one to lift him up on high. And he still would have stayed there. And for the joy set before him, he still would have died and bled out for you because of the love that he has for you. so powerful to me i was praying this week preparing for this and the lord would it, i i couldn't think on this too much I just think the price that he paid for me i just don't feel like i'm worth that but he says that i am and i love that i love that you might be here today and you might feel like you're not worth it and you might be here today and you might like, you feel like you just don't have it all together and your life is falling apart. And I'm here to tell you that you are part of that joy that sent Jesus to the cross because he looked past all of it and saw you and the love in his heart put him there to give his life as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. I love it. Don't ever forget that he died for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins. He is a lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. Isaiah talked about him 700 years before he was even on this earth. Jesus' whole life, Jesus' whole life was about that one moment on the cross and then later being raised from the dead. Which we're going to celebrate like crazy next week. I can't wait for it. His whole life 
from birth to his death was about being the sacrificial lamb. And when Jesus was born, you know where he was born? He was born in a city called what? Bethlehem. You guys going to sleep? Did that rain put you to sleep this morning? He was born in a city called Bethlehem, the city of David, born of, out of the lineage of David. You know what's funny? You know Bethlehem was the, back in Jesus' time, was the only place where you would find that the sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple during the Passover for atonement of sins for the family, the only place you could find them was in Bethlehem. That's where they raised them. And there was this special group of priests from the temple that were shepherds over those lambs. And they would be charged with raising those lambs and protecting them and keeping them safe because they had to be without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect in order to be sacrificed for sin and the system that they operated in back then. When Jesus was born, he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says he was born in a, and laid in a manger. There's no room in the inn. The Bible says something that's absolutely powerful to shed light on the place where Jesus was born. When the angels appeared before the shepherds and given the good news and saying, hey, in the city of David, a Savior is born it's in Bethlehem. It says, you'll find him in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. But what's interesting is that a swaddling cloth or a swaddling cloth was a specific kind of cloth that was used only by those shepherd priests to wrap those sacrificial lambs when they were born. That's why the angel didn't have to tell the shepherds where to go. They knew exactly where to go because there was only one place in Bethlehem where they could go and find swaddling clothes and a manger. And that was the field where the sacrificial lambs were raised. Our Savior was born in a cave at the back of a field. In the very place where the sacrificial lambs that were offered in the temple were born. Wrapped in the same swaddling cloth and laid in the same manger that those lambs would have been laid in. And when he was born, they would have wiped him down with salt to take care of the afterbirth and to purify him because salt is a great purifier. When the sacrificial lambs were born, the same thing was done to them. They would wipe them down with salt. And they would wrap them in the swaddling cloth and lay them down in the manger so they could not damage themselves because they had to be without spot, wrinkle, blemish. Had to be perfect. Our Savior was washed in that same salt, laid in that same manger. When those lambs were sacrificed in the temple during the Passover, what they would do is they would, 
you come in as a family and you pay this price for this lamb and they would bring the lamb up to the, the priest that was doing the sacrifice and they would put your family name on us wooden sign and they would hang it up over the place of sacrifice so that when your lamb was up to be sacrificed the name of your family would go up there and the priest would announce this lamb is being sacrificed for the sins of the Johnson family or the Smith family and they would sacrifice the lamb and it would cover and atone for the sins of your family and your household for the year. When Jesus was crucified and lifted up, Pilate told them to put a sign over his head. And he told them to write the king of the Jews on it. You see the symbolism in this? Absolutely powerful. The religious leaders pushed back against it. And they said, no, 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 no. You're not going to say the king of the Jews. You can put, he said he was the king of the Jews, but you can't put the king of the Jews because I think they understood the symbolism in it too. Because to put a guy up there who said he's going to die for his people in a place of sacrifice with a name of his people over the top of them, great symbolism. And even if that wasn't connected in their minds, do you see how powerful it is that in the place of sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb was being offered for you and for me with the name of God's people over the top of it. It's amazing. It's amazing. We know from John chapter 19 a rough timeline of when Jesus was crucified and executed. Did you know that about the time Jesus was being taken out to be crucified, Caiaphas, the high priest, would have been leading the procession, this big parade going into the temple to kick off the celebration of Passover where they would be offering these sacrificial lambs for the families. And when Jesus died, we have an approximate timeline to tell us that when he died, it would have roughly been at about the end of the sacrificial period in the temple. While he was hanging on the cross, lambs were being offered for the families. They had no idea that the one true Lamb of God was being offered up for every household, for every generation, for all time. And he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. And what happens next, a lot of you know this, but it's so powerful with the sequence in which it happens. He was the last sacrifice that day. He was the last offered lamb that day. When he died, the ground shook. The earth quaked. 
The temple was damaged. And the Bible says that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. That curtain, that veil was about a foot thick. That's a lot of material. When they would adjust it and move it, it would take roughly 300 priests to move that thing because it weighed so much. And God just said, Because when Jesus said it's finished, it was finished. He is the sacrificial lamb for your sins and my sins. He restored that relationship that we could never restore on our own. He, I praise God for what he did. I praise God for what he did. For the punishment that he took. For the blood that he shed. 700 years ago it was spoken before he was born. 700 years before he was born it was spoken over him. And while he lived it in the events of his life he was prophetically painting a picture of how he was the sacrificial lamb of God. Tell me God isn't awesome.